story that uh, kind of grabbed my attention. It's a true story about a man, a very intelligent man, but he got lost even though he had a map in his hand. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you get lost when you've got a map that shows you all the details of where you need to go? Well, here's how it happened in this particular case. The man's name was E.F. Schumacher. He was born in Germany, but he spent most of his life teaching and writing in Great Britain. He was a world-famous economist. And on one occasion, he'd been invited to come over to Russia to do some teaching. This was back in the early 1970s when the communists were in control of that company, our country. So for two weeks, Mr. Schumacher came over to the city of Leningrad and gave a series of lectures. Well, when the lectures were done, Mr. Schumacher stayed for an extra day or two to do some sightseeing. There's a lot of fascinating things to see in the city of Leningrad. So one morning with a map in hand, he marked out all the sites he wanted to be sure to see. He went out for this walk. And yet he kept getting lost. And here was the problem. The paper that he had in his hand, the map that he was holding, did not match with what he was seeing with his eyes. One of the sites that intrigued Mr. Schumacher, that he wanted to be sure to see, were these church buildings that you can find throughout the city of Leningrad, those uh, famous Russian Orthodox churches with their very distinctive architecture. You know, sitting on top, sometimes you'll see two or three on one church building. They have these huge domes. They look like giant onions. And Mr. Schumacher had never seen a church building like this before, and he's really fascinated by this. But this is where he would get confused. As he would come to every one of those church buildings in an effort to try to get his bearings to say, okay, where am I at in the city of Leningrad? And he looked down on the map, and the church wasn't there. And that just kept throwing him off, and this kept happening throughout the day. So finally, he found this Russian person who could speak some English and say, hey, can you help me out? And the Russian person smiled and said, I know what your problem is. I know why you're getting a loss. It's that map you're holding. You see, because of the communists, we don't show churches on the map. So what you're holding, this guide you're using, it's not going to match with what you see. Now, to me, that explains a lot. How many people do you know right now who are using a map to guide them through this life, and yet they're constantly getting off track, constantly becoming confused and getting lost because God's nowhere to be found on their map? You're always going to be off in your bearings if God's not a part of the picture. You are never going to understand this world and the way it was designed to function or how you were made to live in this world until you put God on the map. Now, to me, this is one of the issues I think the Jewish people are wrestling with here in Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. This is one of those major celebrations. You know, there was Passover in the spring, and then in early summer, we, have, we call it Pentecost. The Jewish people call it the Feast of Weeks, Feast of First Fruits. That's early summer. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles in the early fall. So three times a year, when Jewish people would gather from all over the world, travel a long distance, come here to the city of Jerusalem just to worship God. It's like a giant family reunion, and everybody looked forward to it. But this Pentecost is different. Now here in the city of Jerusalem, Jewish people are witnessing things they have never seen before. And this map that they have in their mind of what they know to be true about God, what they expect for him to, 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 you know, here's how I expect you to act. All of a sudden this map is not lining up with what they're seeing, with what they're witnessing with their eyes. And so you get down to verse 12 and you read how these Jewish people are amazed and perplexed. And they begin to ask the question, hey, what does all this mean? I mean, it's obvious to us that God is at work here, but why is he acting in this way? We need some answers. And that's exactly the kind of reaction that God wanted. See, verse 6 tells us these are God-fearing Jews. These are men and women who are pious and faithful. These are men and women who are serious about living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And yet, there's something missing in their life. 
There's a gap here that only Jesus can fill. And God wants them to realize that. But before they can realize that, he first of all has to get their attention. So God begins to act in some highly unusual ways. He grabs the hearts of the people. He stirs up their curiosity. What's God doing? Why is, we've never seen him do something like this before. And why here? Why now? What has this got to do with us? I mean, we are Jews. We are pious Jews. I thought we were doing fine. I thought everything between us and the Lord was good. You know, to me, it's kind of like what Jesus did with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Do you remember that account? Here's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. Somebody we would have referred to it as a man of God. I mean, he knows the Bible inside and out. Every, every Sabbath, he's there at the synagogue. In fact, he'd be one of the men who would stand up in the synagogue and, and teach others. He prays every day. He memorizes scripture. I mean, spiritually, he seems to have it all together. And yet that night, late at night, Nicodemus, John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus for this private one-on-one conversation. And immediately, Jesus surprises him. I mean, right off the bat, first words out of his mouth, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And all of a sudden, for Nicodemus, his world is turned upside down. Please understand, Nicodemus is not like many of those other Pharisees you read about here in the Bible. He's not a hypocrite. Nicodemus is a good man. He's an honest seeker. I mean, when he comes to Jesus there in John chapter 3, he says, Jesus, we know, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. I mean, we can recognize there's something distinctive and unique about you. We've seen the miracles that you perform. We've seen the power of God at work in your life. Jesus, we know there's something special about you. But Jesus, rather than be flattered, he just brushes all that aside immediately. He just gets straight to the point and he basically says, Nicodemus, let's not beat around the bush. I don't care what you've seen with your eyes. What I'm concerned about is what's going on in your heart right now. Nicodemus, it's not enough for you to see the miraculous. You need to experience the miraculous on the inside of you. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And that expression, born again, literally means to be born from above. You need a special work of God where God changes you from the inside out. And Nicodemus, when he hears that, he is stunned. He is confused. He's really thrown off balance. And Yet at the same time, he's also very, very curious. So for the rest of the night, he sits there with Jesus trying to figure out what does it mean to be born again? Well, I think God is trying to stir up the same kind of curiosity here in Acts chapter 2. We've got pious Jews. I mean, they've traveled a long way, coming from all different places in the world. They come here to the city of Jerusalem to worship God like they have always done in the past. But on this Pentecost, their world gets turned upside down. Now through the lives of the 12 apostles, They witness a special work of of God's Holy Spirit, miraculous activity, all kinds of miraculous activity taking place like they have never seen before. They know it's real. They just don't understand what it all means. So they begin to come into the temple. So verses 1 to 13 of Acts chapter 2, here is God setting the stage for what's going to happen in verses 14 to 41. When Peter gets up and he begins to speak and he says, you want to know what this means? I'll tell you. But I mean, here's what God's doing, and here's what God wants from you. So verses 1 to 13 in Acts chapter 2, we witness one kind of work of the Holy Spirit where he equips people like the 12 apostles. He empowers them to serve the Lord. He enables them to carry out a mission for God. But then in verses 14 to 41, we witness another kind of work being done by God's Holy Spirit, an even more important work, the work that he does in your heart and mind where he saves and transforms our lives. Now today, we're going to look at the first part of Acts chapter 2, and next Sunday we'll look at the second part. So read along with me. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost means 50, 
So 50 days after the Passover, the Jews come back to Jerusalem to celebrate again. In this part of the world, it's the end of the barley harvest. It's the beginning of the wheat harvest. So they are now in the process of gathering in all this grain. And they pause for a few days just to say, thank you, God. Once again, you've just shown us how good you are. You've proven again that you, you provide, you take care of us. And we just wanna, we want you to know how grateful we are. But this Pentecost is special because on this day, now God is bringing in a new kind of harvest, a harvest of souls. Here is God who's now beginning to draw people to Jesus so they can begin to follow him. So the way it reads here, it says, when the day of Pentecost came. And in the Greek, it's a word that literally means fulfilled. This Pentecost won't be like any other. God had this date circled on his calendar. On this day, he intended to do something like he had never done before. So when this day of Pentecost came, they, who are the they? Well, the people we've just been reading about in Acts chapter 1. The verse right before this, Matthias and the other 11 apostles. They, the 12 apostles, they were all together in one place. When verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven, came from above, literally came from above, came from the sky. But on a much deeper level, it came from God. It is God who's at work here. So suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Two unusual things going on. This mighty gust of air at a time of year when you don't expect it, it's the dry season. It's Pentecost. It's early June. In the land of Israel, Man, there's no rain at this time of the year. There's no storms. I mean, most days there's not even a cloud in the sky. There's not even the threat of an approaching storm. And to suddenly hear a sound like this, like the force of a hurricane, something loud and scary, man, this is way out of the ordinary. And then the second unusual thing about this is just the sound of the wind. There's no actual wind. You don't feel anything pushing against you. You don't see the trees bending. You don't see the dust and sand blowing down the street. It just sounds like the roar of a freight train. And you talk about something mind-boggling and also kind of eerie. Wow, I've never experienced anything like this before. What's going on? The Bible says here in verse 2, the sound filled the house. So what about those outside the house? Well, you get down to verse 6, and it says they heard the sound too. And that word heard in verse 6 it's written in the imperfect tense, so it means it's been going on for quite a time. People all over the city of Jerusalem. It sounds like a violent storm. Do we need to run for cover? And then they notice, but I don't feel the gust of air. I don't see anything moving or blowing around, but it sure sounds awful. And it's all coming from the direction of that house. So they begin to gather in. And at that point, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the 12 apostles come out of the house and they begin to move the temple because later on, God's going to need some space for them to speak to the people. So they come out. And verse 3, they not only heard something miraculous, now they're going to begin to see something miraculous. Verse 3, it says, And they, the crowd, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, like a giant flame of fire in the shape of a tongue. And then all of a sudden that flame separates into little flames that come to rest not just on anybody, but those 12 people, those 12 apostles. Now, it wasn't actually fire, but the only way they knew of describing it, you know, for anybody who wasn't there that day, boy, it's way out of the ordinary. I mean, I've never seen anything like this before. Best way I can describe it, it's like a giant flame of fire, shape of a tongue, and then it's split up into these little flames. So they're hearing something, they're seeing something, and it comes to rest in those 12, which means God's getting ready to do something special through them. And then we witness our third miracle, verse 4. And it says, all of them, the holy, or all of them, the 12 apostles, were filled. They're now under the control of God's Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues, languages that they've never studied before. As the Spirit enabled them. This word tongue, glosses, 
It's a word normally, it either talks about the tongue in your mouth or the language you speak with that tongue. That's the normal way it's used. And, and it's used that way here in Acts chapter 2. Look at how it's described. It says, verse 5, it says, Now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Here are people who can validate this. Hey, I, I come from that country. I, I, that's my language. I can verify it. Yeah, he's, he's talking mine, my language. So when the crowd heard the sound, verse 6, they hear the mighty rushing wind, and yet there's no wind at all. What, what's going on? So they come together in bewilderment, and they begin to move towards the house, and then they see the flames of fire. And now they come to the third miracle, and each one heard their own language being spoken. And here's what astounds them. It's who's speaking these languages. Utterly amazed, verse 7, utterly amazed, they ask, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans are Jewish people who live in the northern part of Israel. And in the northern part of Israel, if you were born and raised in that part of the country, you grew up speaking either both Aramaic and, and, and Greek. You spoke, the, but those, those are not the languages they're speaking here. And, and up at Galilee, they're not known for their education. Not a lot of colleges and universities up there. Not that the people are dumb. They're not. But not a lot of, you know, official education going on. And yet, these guys, they never studied these languages before, and they're speaking them. And here's the other part that gets them. In Galilee, they're known for their really heavy accent. And because of the way they say their words, the way they've trained their tongue through the years, even if these Galileans were to go to college and study these languages, they'd still have trouble pronouncing some of the words. And yet, here are these 12 apostles speaking these lang languages, each one of them flawlessly, like they were born and raised in that country. That's why they're utterly amazed, utterly amazed that they aren't these who are speaking to us, Galileans. And how is it each of us hears it like they, they were native to our own country? And then just to verify, verses 9, 10, 11, the Bible lists all these faraway places where these Jewish people have lived and come from. And then again to validate that these 12 apostles are not just speaking gibberish. You get down to the end of verse 11 and it says, here's why God had them speaking each in their own particular languages so they could tell them, so they could declare to them the wonderful things that God has done for his people. Now, if I'm a part of the crowd that day, I get down to verse 11, and just like those other Jewish people, I'm going to be amazed, and I'm going to be perplexed, and I'm going to want to know, what does this mean? I mean, it's obvious God's at work in here, but what is he doing? Here is God performing these highly unusual signs, but what are the signs pointing to? William Nelson was a general in the Union Army. He fought in the Civil War through the years. In the course of that war, he fought a lot of battles, so his life was constantly in danger. I mean, at some time, at some points, it just seemed like every day he was facing death, just bullets flying all around his head, and yet not once, in the midst of all that peril, not once did he ever suffer a wound, not even a scratch. You talk about a lucky fellow. And it was because of that good luck that he never really took his spiritual life all that seriously. Yeah, yeah, I know I need to read the Bible. I know I need to go to church. I'll get around to that someday. Strangest thing. One day when the Confederate army is more than 100 miles away, so there's no threat of any battle, no threat of anything bad happening, here's General William Nelson sitting in a home, sitting, relaxing in a home with a bunch of his men. When all of a sudden a fight breaks out between two of his privates and a gun is fired and the bullet winds up in his chest. And that's something all these years fighting the Confederates, he's been in the midst of all this danger, all these bullets flying around, never gets hit by any of those, but he gets hit from one of his own men, something he never expected. And immediately when he got hit with the bullet, William Nelson knew, I'm about to die. So his, the first words out of, his mess, uh, out of his mouth, send for a preacher. I want a preacher right now. He had never made a request like that before. Why make it now? Had he learned something new about God? No. His entire life, he knew deep down inside, I need to get close to the Lord. He just never did anything about it. 
But now with that bullet in his chest, General William Nelson realizes I'm not going to be here much longer and I'm not ready to meet God. And something that was never urgent before all of a sudden became very urgent. And suddenly he needed answers to questions he never thought to ask before. I think we have the same thing going on here in Acts chapter 2. Think about it. If Peter had stood up to preach in this day without any of this miraculous activity, I doubt that he would have had much of a crowd. And the few people that would stop to listen probably would not be listening with any sense of urgency. So, before Peter could sow the seed, God had to first of all dig up the soil. He had to get the audience ready. He had to open hearts. He had to stir up a sense of alarm a sense of need, a sense of alertness. So God begins to work in these highly unusual ways to grab their hearts, to stir up this curiosity. Hey, what's going on? And what has this got to do with me? And that's when Peter stands up to speak and he talks to him about Jesus. And here on this Pentecost, this Pentecost, God begins to bring in a new harvest, a harvest of souls. Now, one other thing. I think it's real important to keep a scripture like this in perspective. Never again, when, and Peter would preach for years and years to come, but never again would he experience a response like this. 3,000 people all at once responding to the invitation. Never again would there be a response like this on any of the occasions when he preached. And never again would God set the stage for one of his sermons like he did on this day. Though you find something similar in Acts chapter 10 on a much smaller scale when Peter's trying to work with Cornelius. But for years and years to come, Peter would understand this work of trying to bring in a harvest for the Lord it was going to be a long, slow, difficult process. But for years and years to come, Peter would understand that any opportunity he ever got to testify for Jesus, whether he's speaking to thousands or he's just trying to work with one, Peter would never forget the lesson of this day. That unless the Holy Spirit is preparing me to speak and unless the Holy Spirit is working on the heart of the one I'm talking to, there will be no harvest. It's similar to what God did for the Israelites back in the book of Joshua. Do you remember? First time into the promised land. What's the first battle? Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice if God fought every battle that way? Just hand the city to you. You don't even have to raise a sword. But Jericho was unique. It was a signature moment. God was making a statement. The Lord is on the move. And throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, he would continue to move. He just moved in different ways. I mean, for the next seven years, the Israelites would have to fight. I mean, really fight before they could finally conquer all the nations and claim the rest of the land. Never again would they fight a battle like they fought at Jericho. But every time they went out to fight, they never forgot the lesson of Jericho that if God's not here and if he's not taking the lead in this moment, there will be no victory. And his, I'll, I'll close with this. In his biography of Dwight Eisenhower, you know, the man who was president of the United States way back in the 1950s, two-term president, president for eight years, very popular president. Anyway, in his biography of Dwight Eisenhower, Jeffrey Perot tells about this time in Dwight and his wife, Mamie, their lives when they lost their boy. They called him Mickey. That was his nickname. Ike, that was the nickname for the president, little Ike. He was only three years old when he passed from this life. And Dwight and Mamie were just devastated. In fact, they never got over it. They never stopped grieving. Well, through the years, the president really needed to talk about this. And yet, President Eisenhower was a very private man. He wouldn't open up to just anyone. Well, on several different occasions, President Eisenhower would play golf with Billy Graham. And it was while the two of them were there on the golf course, standing all alone there in the green, the Secret Service men some distance away. It was there while they were standing alone on the green 
that finally President Eisenhower would open up and start talking about his boy and talk about the loss of his son. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Billy Graham caught a lot of flack for this. There were many in the religious world who criticized him. What are you doing playing golf? Wasting your time playing a game. You need to be out holding those giant evangelistic crusades. But Billy Graham knew he is in the life-saving business, and whether he's speaking to thousands or whether he's just working with one, whoever he works with, he's got to let God work. Give him time to work. See, Dwight Eisenhower, here's this highly decorated general, here's this popular president, here's this great man, this great leader, a guy who seems to have it all together, but Billy Graham knew differently. This guy's hurting. This guy's in need. Right now he's in a hole, a deep hole called grief. And Billy Graham knew before I can show him a way out of that hole, I first of all got to let God set the stage. I've got to let God open this man's heart. Before I try to offer answers, I need to first of all hear the questions from him. You see, Dwight Eisenhower did not open up to Billy Graham the first time they got together for golf. It was only... After many times in the golf course, after many rounds of golf, when the two men had actually built a trust, these two men had actually established a genuine friendship, only after Dwight Eisenhower was absolutely convinced that Billy Graham is a safe man to talk to, only then did he begin to open up a little ways and share the pain of his troubled heart. Billy Graham knew if God doesn't work, there will be no harvest. Here in Acts chapter 2, we are witnessing the 12 apostles doing some amazing things and experiencing some amazing results. But the reason for all of this amazement is found in verse 4. And they began to speak as the Holy Spirit enabled them. So as a church, we've got to constantly be asking ourselves, are we trusting God? Are we daily leaning on him? Are we really depending upon him to enable us to serve Jesus? Because if we're not, all our work and all our effort means nothing. So in a spirit of trust, in a spirit of dependence, let's pray. Let's bow our heads and let's bow our hearts. And right now, just turn to the Lord and ask for his help. His special help. God, we're here today.